Here come the blue shirts. If you weren't awake to play in that kind of game, then you weren't made to play hockey in Madison Square Garden. He's got experience in the streets and in the alleys. <laughs> and in the alleys. He will whoop your ass. <laughs> I'm looking better now than I did before. Ron, it's her all name. your fault. It's over for all of you. Once I'm on the team. Well, you're going to have to let me dress you, though. <laughs> oh, 100%. You cannot, that, that's going to be Ron Duguay's third act. Molly off the air. Wow. <laughs> Molly off the air. It's a whole different person. Yeah. Up in the He'll blue be courtside seat. and I'll be up in the blue seat. <laughs> Ooh. Welcome back to Up in the Blue Seats, our New York Rangers podcast from the New York Post. The Rangers coming off a couple of tough losses over the weekend. We'll talk about them, of course, with the Hall of Famer, Larry Brooks. We'll also talk with a guy who calls every sport on every channel ever created. He's a family of broadcasters. He's the Rangers radio play-by-play man on ESPN Radio New York, 98.7 FM. You hear him on NHL on TNT, Fox Sports, Westwood One, Olympics on NBC. It's the great Kenny Albert joining us later in the program as well. we got a packed show, so let's welcome in our host of Up in the Blue Seas, coming to you from all over the globe today. And this week, first, it's the queen of the post, Molly Walker, and her co-host, Rangers great number 10, Ron Duguay. Yes, hi, everyone. Welcome to another show, and we anticipate another great show, and the four of us are back together. And yes, I have a uh, level of excitement that Kenny Albert will be here today because... He is so full of um, knowledge on all sports. You ask him a question, just sit back, and he gives you a 10-minute answer, and he's so informed. So I'm looking forward to Kenny. We've been trying to get him on for the last couple of years. He's been so busy, but we will have him on today. Uh, I do have to make a mention, uh, Tara, who uh, just completed his 652 games, played in the NHL, and that puts him at the top of the leader board on top of uh chris chelios who's a friend of mine and chris has been uh he's uh, if you listen to his comments he has a good sense of humor about it although you don't like your record to be broken chris really loves chara because chara everything we know about him not only is he a hard player to play against but a really good man good teammate so we wish him or congratulations to chara and i look forward to uh this coming up uh, this week with St. Louis coming to town. And uh, with St. Louis, Busnevis comes to town. For me, he's always been a player that I've admired. I appreciated his style of play. He competed hard, and he was a fan favorite. So I'm assuming Molly, uh, who uh, is standing by right now, for you, yourself, Busnevis coming in, you have to have some good feelings about him. Well, I'm honestly excited to hear what the Rangers have to say in practice on Tuesday about getting to see Buchnevich for the first time this season. Or at least it's definitely the first time he's coming back to the Garden. So I'm sure there will be a tribute video as well from the Rangers. And uh, it was a move that had to happen that obviously many fans of the organization weren't pleased with. But it was kind of a, a move that had to happen. And, and Buchnevich has really thrived in St. Louis. So good on him. Um, But I'm sure the Rangers will see what they traded away when they come to town on Wednesday. It it should be interesting to see. But a couple tough games in recent days. The Pittsburgh game felt like a playoff game. It was entertaining as hell to watch. I really enjoyed it. After every whistle, there was a scrum. It was intense. It was nasty. 
And uh, hey, I wouldn't mind if that was the first round matchup for the Rangers. It would, I think it would be quite entertaining. I know some people on Twitter.com disagreed, especially with the officiating in that game, which I agree was a little all over the place. But what are you going to do about that? And then obviously the 5-2 to two loss to the Canucks was not as exciting as that Pittsburgh game. The Rangers have just been in a bit of a scoring funk right now. They haven't really been clicking on all cylinders like they were before the break. They were averaging like four goals a game in the six games leading up to the break. And now they're averaging under two. So the division matchups are going to start ramping up here and the Rangers better figure it out pretty quickly. I think that's one of the things that I've enjoyed uh, with the way things are set up in the National Hockey League, where every game is so important to the teams that are competing to make the playoffs and to fight for a certain position. Come January and February, all the games are very competitive. Most of the time, you'll see the games being played differently, like playoff hockey come it's really come March towards April, but now it starts much earlier. So the games get a lot more competitive and the coaches kind of put their foot down, having the players play really well defensively and still wanting to score goals. So that's why we saw that kind of game. Pittsburgh had just lost two games and uh, they're led by a guy by the name of Sidney Crosby, who provides a lot of leadership. And, and when those guys decide to want to play in a different way, you can just see it on the ice. So now the Rangers, I think it's a good measuring mark for them to know what it's going to be like and what's when you're looking at your team, you're evaluating your team. What's missing? What do you need to add? And that brings me to Philip Heedle, who we're still kind of wanting to see how he's going to develop and what kind of player. Is he a centerman? Is he a winger? But he's the type of player, though, that can score goals. And with the Rangers struggling to score goals, it's kind of puzzling that they didn't have him back in the lineup, especially with McKay in the lineup. Why is it that Heedle, they kept him out? And, of course, Coach Gallant is saying, well, things look good. Team's winning. You don't want to disrupt anything. But still, when you're looking moving forward and your team's not scoring, Heedle's that guy that potentially is always a threat if he's playing with the right teammates. So do you have an update on Heedle? Do you, do you think he's going to play this week? I would be a little shocked if he doesn't get back in the lineup, honestly. I think that, I think it was after the Washington game. I think that's when Coach Gerard Gallant said that he was feeling under the weather and that's why he was a scratch. But then it was a coach's decision the next two games to keep him out. The Washington game was great. They played great in that game as well. It was a four to one win taken with a great assault. I believe Washington hadn't played in, in a long time as well. So I think that probably played into it, but they looked great in the Washington game. So I think Gallant didn't want to mess with that a little bit, which is kind of a page out of the David Quinn book. (laughs) David Quinn liked to do that a lot. Whenever the Rangers had a really good game, he wouldn't even touch the lineup, which is, I don't know if it's the right way to go, especially when you've got someone like Greg McKegg as your number three center right now. But that's also a testament to the assets that the Rangers have. Regarding Philip Hedl, we talked about it last week, too. It really is. It could go either way. He could be part of a trade by the trade deadline on March 21st. That's a total possibility. And if Gallant's not going to put him back in the lineup, then you can take it to the bank that he will be part of a trade package because you can't have an asset like Philip Hedl just sitting in street clothes in the press box every night. So I think it'll be interesting to see where Gallant goes from here. I do expect him to get back into the lineup against St. Louis, and I do think it'll be Morgan Barron, who comes out of the lineup, which I know a lot of fans won't be as as happy about because obviously the offensive upside of a younger player and Greg McKegg, it's just been 
a little too many games for Greg McKegg here at this point. Um, no knock on him. We know we know how much Gallant likes him. We know that he's you know considers him reliable, and the penalty killing is important to Gallant. And and Gallant also said it was an experience thing. You know, when he made the switch, he put McKegg in the center and Barron on the wing. He said he wanted to have a more experienced guy in the middle. So that that's how Gallant sees it. That's how he weighs. Um, the importance of of traits in a player, I guess. So, and and that's okay. But um, we know that with the trade deadline coming up, Chris Jury absolutely has to make a move. There just needs to be something needs to give. We need somebody else in the lineup here. Ron, I hope Greg McKeg's family doesn't listen to the show. That's back to back weeks. Molly has buried Greg McKeg. This poor guy <laughs> is just getting killed by Molly. Goddamn. <laughs> no, come on. No, no knock on him at all. Seriously, he's a great guy. We love talking to him. He's a good quote. You know, he's a great depth player to have. He is somebody that you want on your team when you have an injury, you know, somebody that can step in who has experience that can that can fill the void when needed. Is he an everyday starter? No, I would say no. And so I, I'm going to go back to Hedl. And this, and this is where coaches and managers tend to disagree. If, if Dury's thinking about trading him, he wants him on the ice. He wants him playing. He wants him playing well. You want to showcase a guy that you're thinking about wanting to trade. Now a coach doesn't see it that way. He's thinking, I need to win the next game, and I'm putting my best players in the lineup. And if Heedle's not that guy, he's just not playing. So that's why it's kind of a mixed messaging on whether he's really up for trade. I find it hard to believe that he's not playing and is that close to the trade deadline that he's not in the lineup. And so that remains to be seen. But Kenny Albert will be on the show today, Molly. When you think of Kenny Albert, I know him personally, so I kind of know him and, and I like to listen to him because you can listen to any sport and Kenny's there and he can talk about it and he knows the history of everything. What does he mean to you as a journalist? Kenny is just an absolute all-star. I think he's just the epitome of not being a one-trick pony. You can insert him on any broadcast, any team, any sport, doesn't matter. He will come in and just light it up. I respect him tremendously. And we actually do have a mutual friend, um, one of my best friends from college. Her dad is a big time sports agent. Kenny and this man are very, very good friends. They go to the same um, country club in uh, closer New Jersey. So uh, Kenny and I made that connection uh, when, when we were in the press box together uh, for the first time about uh, two years ago or so. So yeah, Kenny's the man and really looking forward to talking to him. And I was going to say it's tax season and, and that man, he better have a good accountant because he's, he's got W-2s coming from about 12 different companies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, it's, it's so impressive to do one sport and to be really good at it. Even as an athlete, like an athlete can do a couple of sports, right? But for what he does and to be so good at it, and he transitions from one to the other and all the preparation work, because we know what it's like to prep, right, with what we do. When he does it for all sports, I, I just can't imagine. you got to have a real passion, a real love to want to do it. He loves to do research. He loves to read. He's well-informed. And that's what makes him what – that's what separates him from the rest of them. Like some will just show up. And do the work. They'll be prepared, and they can just talk about it. But with him, he loves to be informed. You're right. With the preparation, they have all different charts. They have the rosters in front of them. They have Twitter on one screen. They got this on another screen. It is a lot of work. And the guy who's on the radio calls for the Rangers is Kenny Albert. and He's going to join up in the blue seats next. 
Now Girardi has it far side. Behind for Richardson. Front door! The Rangers win in the third overtime. Marion Gabrick beats Holtby. Delzato shoots at Clark. Comes in front. Callahan with a chance. It's stopped. Rebound. Score! 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 With 6.6 seconds remaining. The Rangers tie the game at two on the power play. Clark comes out to the right point for Stahl. Wide. Shoot! Scores! He scores! Mark Stahl on the power play. Rangers lead the series three games to two. Into the Montreal zone, down the left wing with a shot in front, score! Rangers win! Mika Zabanajan with the overtime goal, and the Rangers win game five, lead the series three games to two. Five seconds remaining, Subban has it, three, two, one, for the first time in 20 years, the New York Rangers are headed to the Stanley Cup Finals. That montage you just heard was courtesy of MSG Rangers Radio Network, 98.7 ESPN-FM, and NBC Sports. And now, time for our special guest. Our special guest this week is a familiar face and voice to every Rangers fan. You've heard him on MSG Radio, MSG Network, Fox, NHL on TNT, Westwood One Radio, and NBC for many, many years. He's one of the most dynamic announcers in the industry, having called games for all four major sports leagues. He's a guy I'm so happy to call my friend. Please welcome Kenny Albert. Kenny, thanks so much for joining us. How are you? I am great, Molly. Uh, great to be with all of you guys. I'm a big fan of the podcast, so uh, really looking forward to it. Thanks so much. Regarding your career, I was wondering, what, if anything, is the most difficult part about switching from calling one sport to another? I know as a general assignment sports reporter myself, I've had days where it's difficult to adjust after covering one sport for so many days and then making the switch to another right after. Just what's the most difficult part about it and, and how do you work through it? Well, Molly, I think at this point, I'm probably so used to it, bouncing back and forth between the various sports. I've had weeks in the past, primarily in October, when everything's going on at once, where I might have a couple of hockey games during the week, a football game on the weekend, uh, a basketball game thrown in, a a baseball playoff game. I had that situation uh, for for a number of years. But uh, to me, the key is to be organized and prepared, get your work done early. The biggest challenges are probably uh, some of the early morning flights. I don't mind the travel. I'm, I'm used to it. I get so much work done on planes and in taxis and Ubers and in hotel rooms. But uh, as long as you're organized and prepared, you know, the biggest challenge for some sportscasters might be going back and forth between radio and TV. Now, again, I'm used to it. I've done it for a number of years. But on radio, you really have to describe everything. If it's hockey, is the puck in the near corner, the far corner, uh, out by the red line, the left point, the right point. On TV, the viewers can see that, so you don't have to be as descriptive. You allow more time for the color analyst to come in. On radio, you have to give the score and time a lot more. On TV, it's up there on the left-hand corner of the screen. So there are definitely some challenges, but you know, I guess when you've been around for uh, three decades now, which is hard to believe, uh, it's pretty much second nature. You know, I've always said, I get asked all the time, which sport is the hardest? Most people think it would be hockey on the radio. To me, that's the easiest. It's almost like riding a bike. I could probably wake up in the middle of the night, and if you handed me the two rosters, I could probably call a hockey game. You know, the pronunciations also through the years, people who do not follow hockey on a regular basis think that because the players change on the fly, unlike the other sports where they have to wait for a stoppage or a timeout, as Ron knows, those of us in the hockey world, we get used to that pretty quickly. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure. Shifting to the Rangers, considering you've called so many Rangers games in your in your day. I'm wondering which current Ranger has been the most 
enjoyable to watch unfold on the ice and why? Wow, that's a great question. I think when you look at this year's team, there, there are really five superstars. You know, I think the development of Shesterkin uh, coming in during the first uh, shortened season, unfortunately, you know, back in 2020, about two months prior to the stoppage. So he hasn't had a full season yet. This is his first full season. And to look at what he's done is just remarkable. We had heard all of the reports coming out of Russia. He was actually, uh, along with Sorokin, I was over in Pyeongchang in, in 2018, and he had already been drafted by the Rangers. And I I, I remember keeping an eye on him in warmups uh, because he wasn't going to play in any of the games. The athletes from Russia, as they were called during those Olympics, had a veteran goaltender, and Shesterkin and Sorokin rotated as the backups. So, you know, I was always intrigued by just watching him in warmups and, and trying to figure out, you know, what kind of style he was going to play and how good he would be if it would translate to the NHL. And here he is uh, four years later as one of the top goalies in the league, an MVP candidate. And when, when you think about the goaltending position of the Ranger franchise, you know, how lucky have they been, you know, back in the 70s with Jacquemin and Villamur and then with Ron's team with J.D., who went on a tremendous run to the final in 79, and then Van Biesburg comes in and Richter wins a cup, and then you had a couple of years in between, and then Henrik Lundqvist for 17 seasons, and now Shesterkin. So it's really been fun to watch his development. Chris Kreider, obviously, having his greatest season. You know, we've all thought, watching him for the last decade, that he could be a 30, 35, 40-goal scorer at some point, and uh, it looks like that's where he'll end up, if not in the mid-40s this year. Kenny, behind you is a banner of uh, Lundqvist and Shesterkin now taken over. And yes, the Rangers have been blessed in having some great goaltending over the years. But when you think of Lundqvist, when people ask you about Lundqvist, if you've watched from his first game to his last game, how would you describe Lundqvist, what he had meant to you for you to be able to follow him? Well, he, he always stepped up in the big games. I think back to all the game sevens and not only the playoff games, Ron, but there were a number of years, and Dave Maloney and I talk about this frequently, uh, both on and off the air. There were three or four years that they snuck into the playoffs by one or two points. And I don't have the exact years in front of me, but you know, between 2007 and, and 2012, there were a number of those seasons where the only reason they made it to the playoffs was because of games stolen by Henrik Lundqvist. There was the one year where they went down to the last game and they needed, I think, Carolina to lose, which they did. And the Rangers had won earlier in the day. He, he won so many playoff games and series that you might not have expected the Rangers to win. I think back to that first year, 05-06, it was the year coming out of the lockout. Dave and I always joke, it was his first season in the radio booth, and it was Henrik's first season with the Rangers. And he started as the backup to Kevin Weeks, and that didn't last long. By about three weeks to a month into the season, Henrik had taken over as the starter. And that was a team that really did not have any playoff expectations. And it was the year Yager scored 54 goals. You had all the checkmates on the team. Uh, Michael Nylander had a terrific year. And they made it to the playoffs. They lost to the Devils, but it was a team that nobody expected to get there. And they had, you know, that hardworking fourth line with Dominic Moore, Ryan Holweg, and Jed Ortmeyer. They had Blair Betts, you know, just hardworking guys. And Henrik was really the backbone of that team. And I remember interviewing him a few years later about that first year. And he said that his goal, you know, the, the thing that was on his mind more than anything in training camp was, where am I going to live in Hartford? He expected to start with the Hartford Wolfpack with the minor league team, and that never happened. He made it to New York, and and the rest is history. But, I, you know, I think back to the playoffs in 2014 also, down 3-1 in that second-round series to Pittsburgh, and they got booed off the ice. 
after game four, and everybody thought it was over. And then you had the unfortunate situation with Marty St. Louis' mom passing away. But St. Louis coming back and meeting the team in Pittsburgh for game five, that just gave them this this energy. And, and they wound up winning that game and won game six. And then to me, the best period I ever saw Henrik play was game seven in Pittsburgh that year. In the second round, uh, they wind up beating Montreal in the conference final. And then in the Stanley Cup final, you know, what was it, three games? The Kings had over 50 shots and Henrik kept that series. It's only lost four to one. It felt a lot closer than, than it actually was. That series was nuts. <laughs> I'll never forget it. Another deciding factor on teams, you've seen coaches come and go in New York. Another deciding factor is a coach. And Gerard Gallant right now is doing a wonderful job. What is it that you're seeing in him that possibly is different than other coaches that you've seen in New York? Well, he has done a terrific job. And uh, did you play with Gerard in, in Detroit? I did for two seasons. I was there in his rookie season, yeah. Yeah, he had a he had a terrific career as a player. He was a you know 30, 35, 40 goal scorer, played with uh Ron and with Steve Eiserman and some of those other great players in Detroit. We've seen him as a head coach uh in Columbus and then Florida, where he was unceremoniously fired, you know, after a game out in the parking lot in Carolina by the Florida Panthers and had to get a cab to get back to the hotel. But then in Vegas, you know, when you look at what Vegas did that first year, unprecedented, reaching the Stanley Cup final as an expansion team. And that really raised the bar for other expansion teams in sports. You know, I think there were high expectations in Seattle this year because of what Vegas did that first season under under Gerard. But just seems to be a, a player's coach. He, he doesn't ask for much. He asks for you to work hard and show up every day. And, you know, they've obviously changed the structure of the team a little bit, bringing in Ryan Reeves and Barkley Goodrow, who I think have been major factors with, with the way that they play the game. And uh, from all accounts the players enjoy playing for Gerard you know I I was a big fan of David Quinn and I thought David and the prior management really set the tone you know during these last three years with what they called the build not the rebuild acquiring all the assets and trading away some of the veteran players but Gerard has taken them to that next step you know right now they're in a a prime playoff position I, I thought the game against Washington last week was a terrific game one of the most exciting games of the season they went into Pittsburgh lost one nothing but played well had a little bit of a blip in their most recent game as we tape this uh, against Vancouver, although you have to credit Demko, uh, the Vancouver goalie. Kreider had about three or four prime chances, uh, many of them early on in the game. So I thought the Canucks goaltender was the big difference in that one. But overall, I think uh, Gerard's done a terrific job. Kreider, like I said, is having his best season. Uh, when you look at Zibanejad and Panarin and Fox and Chesterkin, five legitimate superstars on this roster, but the coach has certainly been a big part of it. So about you yourself, I know there are certain games that you're probably more excited to uh, be part of, and you just come back from doing the Olympics. So how do the Olympics compare to doing some playoff hockey, some exciting playoff hockey? What, what does the Olympics mean to you because you just got back from doing it? Well, the Olympics were, were different this year because we were in a studio up in up in Stanford, Connecticut, calling the games off monitors. But I have been to five previous Winter Olympics, and, and they're so much fun, an honor to be a part of. I've told the story before. Uh, back in 2002, I received a phone call about a week before the start of the Salt Lake Olympics. The great Doc Emmerich was scheduled to be there in Salt Lake, and Doc and his wife are, are huge dog and horse uh, advocates. They have a farm and a number of animals, and the dog had cancer, and Doc decided to pull out. So I get this unbelievable opportunity a week before the Olympics uh, to go call men's and women's hockey in Salt Lake. And from there, I've worked uh, five more, you know, up until this year, although we were in Stanford, like I said. But when I think back, Ron, uh, having the opportunity to call the Olympics with NHL players there in Salt Lake and then in Torino and Vancouver was a lot of fun in Sochi as well in 2014. To me, I think back to the women's hockey game, the gold medal game that I called in 2018 between the U.S. and Canada. I called the gold medal game this year as well, but it was off a monitor. The energy in the building in Pyeongchang, the excitement, 
Canada had won the previous four gold medals, and the U.S., uh, as I'm sure you all remember, pulled out that game in a shootout. They were tied heading into overtime. Uh, neither team scored in overtime, and then the U.S. won in a shootout. I would put that game up there with the top five events that I've ever had the pleasure of uh, uh, attending or calling. It was just uh, tremendous to be in the building for that one. Uh, so the Olympics are special. There's also nothing like the Stanley Cup playoffs. I've been involved in so many games on, on both the radio and TV side, and then had the opportunity to work the final on TV last year for the first time down in Tampa. So uh, that would be up there in, in my top five as well. Kenny, it's Jake here. Good to have you on the program. The first time on, I think I spoke to you last on coincident, the Jake Brown show. I got real creative with the name like five years ago and you were getting like direct TV installed and no wonder why you need every sports package in sight as you're calling each sport. I mean, you were given a tape recorder at five years old by your dad. And we talk about Mount Rushmore of things. You have a Mount Rushmore in your own family. I mean, both your uncles, Alan, Steve, Marv, your dad, what was the family dynamic like between all of you as broadcasters? I have to imagine the inspiration they passed along to you and starting off so young with the Rangers as a statistician. Um, you were pretty much set at such a young age and you really got to craft what you were great at at five, six years old and look at you today, whatever, four decades later. Well, first of all, Jake, I was wondering how you came up with that name. It was very unique to Jake Brown. <laughs> uh, it's a true story. I did receive the tape recorder from my parents at a very young age, five or six. And I used to tag along to the garden, uh, you know, when Ron was one of the stars for the Rangers uh, and they went on that run in 79. And I used to get autographs outside the locker room. And I have a picture with Ron that he's seen when I was about 13 or 14 years old. That was probably uh, in the early 80s, uh, sometime around 81 or 82. But, you know, always loved hockey. Um, I've been very fortunate to work so many sports, but as a youngster, hockey was really my passion. I played hockey, wasn't very good. Uh, we did have a club team in high school and college. So I did play hockey, you know, at a much, much lower level, but that was really what I wanted to do and would take the tape recorder to games at MSG and uh, Nassau Coliseum on occasion. And uh, really my first big break was filling in on some Islanders games uh, back in 1989 and 90 on the radio side. And I used that tape to send around to minor league teams because that's how uh, you know most of us try to break into the industry. And I was hired back in 1990 by the Baltimore Skipjacks of the American Hockey League, and it was really you know at that time an unbelievable experience. You know, I look back, I would never trade in those two years for anything. Uh, not only did I do the broadcast, but helped out in public relations and marketing and sales. I wasn't a very good salesman; that wasn't my forte. But it was a great learning experience. But our head coach. It was Robbie Laird, who had been a longtime minor league player and coach. Our assistant coach, I was 22, got hired to do the radio. Our assistant coach was a 26 or 27-year-old named Barry Trotz. And to save money, uh, the Skipjack's front office had the radio guy, me, room on the road with the assistant coach, Barry, to save money. So we shared a hotel room for two years, and we had we had a lot of fun. And I learned so much, both about hockey and about life from Barry and being around him. I remember we played Binghamton, the Rangers farm team at the time, in the playoffs in 1991. And one of Barry's duties was to edit uh, the videotape, you know, put all the power plays together and put all the penalty kills together. And back then, we didn't have this, you know, unbelievable video equipment like they have now, where at the snap of a button, you can call up every power play for a team for the entire season. Back then, Barry would travel with two little VHS machines, and he would have to put the tape of the game in one, and he had a, a wire which connected to the other VHS, and he would just have to splice it together, and it would take hours after every game. We were in Binghamton, and I was falling asleep at about midnight or 1 in the morning. We had two beds in the room in the hotel room, and he's on the other bed editing the videotapes together, 
and and one of the tapes got stuck. And you know, Ron, you and I might be the only ones old enough on this on this Zoom call to remember, you know, when cassette tapes would get stuck in a tape recorder or VHS tapes would get stuck. And you'd have to you know, unravel them somehow. And there's Barry Trotz. It took him hours. I had a little screwdriver as part of the radio equipment. And he, he took the screwdriver. And at about 5 in the morning, somehow he got the videotape unraveled. And he was able to uh, get the tapes ready for the practice and the meetings the next morning. But we, we had Joel Quenville on our team, who was at the end of his NHL career. Tim Taylor, who would go on to win Stanley Cups with Detroit and Tampa Bay. The goalies were Ole Kolzig and Byron Defoe, who went on to long NHL careers. So uh, a lot of fun to be around those guys. Keith Jones, who who I worked with on Turner, um, he came to our team out of college. He finished up at Western Michigan, and he was a Washington draft pick, so he joined the team late in the 91-92 season. So, uh, so many great memories. From there, I spent three years in Washington with the Capitals on the TV side and then came up to New York, uh, started working at MSG with the Rangers just prior to the 95-96 season. I hope on off nights you were pounding brews with 27-year-old Barry Trotz back then, Kenny. Uh, some of those road trips, you know, we would go to the Maritimes in, in Canada. There's a story which which I've told, which is probably too long for you guys, but Barry arranged a fake arrest of me as we got off the plane. They would get one person every year, either a player or a trainer, who didn't know about the previous season's escapades. So uh, they got me. I went in an unmarked car. They asked me all the questions. <laughs> passport valid have you ever been arrested do you know anyone that's in trouble that was all sped up by barry trots they got me wow that's incredible last one is is there a sport you haven't called that you want like do you want to call cricket before you retire or some other sport uh not really you know again i've been so fortunate to be involved in in hockey football and then basketball and baseball to a little bit of a lesser extent i've worked some boxing and track and field and volleyball at the last olympics you know, I always enjoy curl- watching curling on TV during the Olympics. I don't know too much about it. Ron, I don't know if you ever actually curled growing up in Canada, but uh, not sure I'd be able to call it, although I, I, I'd probably be able to learn it pretty quickly like some of the other ones. But uh, no, very lucky to be involved in all the sports that I have called throughout the years. Well, Kenny, this was awesome. Thanks so much for your time, and we'll have to get you back on the show sometime soon. Absolutely. Uh, thanks, Molly, Ron, Jake. Really enjoyed it and uh, definitely look forward to coming back. As you guys can see me, I'm going with a different look. This is the Lumberjack look. Hockey Hall of Fame Rangers beat writer at the post, Larry Brooks. I I think there's room for different styles. There's room for different resumes. Are you sick of me after spending three straight days in the car next to this face? (laughs) It was a rather pleasant experience, I have to say. Because you've been doing this, what, for over 40 years. It's an important part of the experience to understand the fabric of a team. Giving Henrik Lundqvist his nickname is, is one of the coolest things in my entire career. He blames or gives credit to you for that nickname. So there you go. (laughs) Yeah, okay. Well, Larry, I'm in agreement with you. No. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. It was great to get to know Brooksy, and he became part of my journey. You know, he was there every day. One year, the Islanders gave out bathrobes. That uh, lasted for about a game. (laughs) Guys were walking around in their bathrooms like, what what is this? We're only seeing the tip of the iceberg. All right. Can we ask Larry a a, a hockey question? It's a two-part answer. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Yes. Welcome, Larry Brooks, who you can follow on Twitter at NYP underscore Brooksy. Read him in the physical copy of The Post and on Post Sports Plus as well. Larry, simple and to the point. What do you make of this Filipino situation going on right now? Well, I'm not really sure exactly where he fits in this lineup under under this, I guess, temporary 
reconstruction. I would expect it to change for Wednesday night's game. I'm sure he's going to be back in the lineup Wednesday night against St. Louis. And I would expect the lines to change. Um, I, I, I think the Rangers got some traction for a couple of games out of the checking line with um, Goodrow, Rooney, and Reeves, which operated as a third line. Was not so successful Sunday night. Rangers now for two straight games have had trouble scoring. So I would expect Heedle to come back. The, the, the problem with Heedle is that I just don't see his fit. I mean, is, is he the center on the third line with who? With Goodrow and who? Should he go up and play the right with Strom and Panarin? That would be my preference, but I'm not sure that that's the way um, the coach sees it. And, you know, perhaps he's not strong enough on the puck he's not you know perhaps he's not good enough defensively to to play with Panarin and Strom but if he's not there exactly what does he bring and uh, you know so I I think I think that's the question you know what role does he really fill for the Rangers what role can he fill for this team that doesn't really seem to have a lot of complementary parts for him so I expect him to get back into the lineup but I, I think as, as a long-term Ranger, I'm seeing less and less of that as a likelihood. I, I, think, I think he's one of the guys, whether it's at this deadline or over the summer, who will be gone next year. And another player who kind of has a question mark over his head is Alexander Georgiev. What are you expecting on that front? Do the Rangers trade him before the March 21st deadline and risk not having an adequate backup for a playoff run? Or do they hang on to him and potentially let him walk in the offseason for nothing? Well, I think some of that depends on whether they can, what the price would be for a backup to replace Alex. Can they move Alex and then get a uh, Thomas Grice? Can they get a Yara Halak? Will Braden Holtby become available, and what and what the price would be for that? They, you know, they they don't want to pay more for a replacement on Georgiev than than they're going to receive in return for him. It's a tough spot for them. It's a tough spot for him. He needs to play more in order to be effective. But can the Rangers really risk that? I see. I thought, and I and I had, I had said this couple uh, last week, and I had written it, that I expected him to play in Ottawa a week ago on Sunday because it would have been then three weeks. And I thought that waiting another week was was just a little bit too much time. But I can understand it. You, you don't want to take a risk of losing a game in Ottawa. So, of course, they played Shesterkin and, and they win it two to one. I don't know. You know, they, they, they play on Wednesday. They play on Friday. Do you, do you trust Alex? You know, why would you sit uh, Shesterkin at this point? Then they go on the four day trip, the, the four game trip where there's a day between each game. They wouldn't have to play Georgiev, but I would expect him to play one out of the four. There, there are a lot of variables. Um, it's, it's hard to rely on a player who plays once every four weeks. It's hard to expect that player to be sharp if he plays once every four weeks. And so every time Alex plays, it's, it's, it's a gamble. The Rangers who play with so much confidence with their goaltender as, as, as the backbone Looked, you know, looked a, l- a little unnerved by it at times. So again, I, I think you know it's a, it's an equation. If they move Georgiev, can they get a backup in his place? Larry, I like to uh, get into something that you've been you wrote about, and it comes up occasionally. Well, sometimes it's more than occasionally, and that's the officiating. And Gerard Gallant will bring it up. All their coaches will bring it up. And I, I guess the message that some coaches would like to send to the officials is, why don't you just let the boys play, as quoted for Gerard Gallant. And sometimes you see it, part of the game, 
And then all of a sudden they start calling things. They can really get in the position where they can change the outcome of a game. So what, in what camp are you in? Would you prefer the officials to call less or call more or be consistent in which way they're going? What is it that you prefer? I prefer referees to consistently call the rule book because players adapt. Players always adapt to the rule book, to what's being called on the ice. I don't understand why the NHL, for the most part, over the last couple of years, has showcased its skill during the regular season, making, you know, officials making calls, making hooking calls, making interference calls, making the the slashing calls in front. And and then as soon as the playoffs begin, a switch, you know, a switch is flipped and nothing is called. Essentially nothing is called. And and so teams have to play two different styles. They, you know, they have to, they have to almost have two different approaches to games, one in the regular season and then another in the playoffs where it's all battle in the trenches and, you know, scrums after whistles and nothing's called. I don't get that. I, I don't get it. I don't like it. I don't think it's fair. So my preference is for referees to consistently call the rule book because even remember in, in uh, when when the league came back in 0506 and they adopted all of the new rules and, and the new enforcement policies that basically if you touch you know, if a player touched a player carrying the puck with a stick, it was, it was going to be a penalty. And the first year or so, there was a dramatic rise in power plays. Dramatic. You know, it went from maybe six, six, seven a game to 11 a game or 12 a game. But by the next year, the players had, had made the adjustment and it was back down to, the, to a normal level. So if players see that hooking is going to be called, they're going to keep their sticks down. You know, they're going to, they're going to keep their sticks to themselves. If, if players see that that cross-checking is going to be called, they're going to adjust to that, to that norm. And, and even we've seen this year already, you know, the league sent out a memo at the start of the year, they were cracking down on cross-checking and they did for a while, but now it's, it's like anything goes. And so the other day in Pittsburgh, there's, there's a play where there are like seven, eight, nine, cross checks before one is called and then the game starts to get out of control for the coach if he has to say well you're you're sitting tonight is that is that something that enters into the equation but I think it's a tantalizing prospect and I think it's a really good question well Larry thanks so much for stopping by and we'll chat again next week thanks guys wow this Rangers team might be for real all righty, that wraps up episode 78 of Up in the Blue Seats, our Rangers podcast from the New York Post. Well, thank you, Jake and Andrew Hart, for producing this show. So, Ron, we do we do have something in common besides our devilish good looks and, uh, you know, our sense of humor and, uh, you know, our sense of fashion is, you know, behind me is, is my sense of fashion. You know, I have a Blockbuster hoodie on and, you know, everyone knows about Blockbuster, but Chicken Parm, I'm probably thinking about Chicken Parm, is my favorite meal. You let me know that your favorite meal is also Chicken Parm. How about that? Yes, it is. And I will go, I will drive miles to go to a restaurant, go to Italian restaurant that has good chicken parm and, and here in alaska italian is not the number one food and so i'm having to drive miles to get a good chicken parm in alaska yeah spaghetti a little white wine i know molly could agree with the wine aspect at least chicken parm the only people who don't like or offended by my hoodie would be vegans maybe um but yeah i mean alaska you got to drive a mile to get a diet coke out imagine things are a little bit farther away out there but you seem to be enjoying the alaskan life I have. In fact, I've never, to think being a Canadian, I've been surrounded by lakes and frozen lakes that, uh, not that I've been a big fisherman, but I have never 
ice fished before. And so I've been ice fishing. The other thing I'm going to do today that I've never done, that's hard to believe as a Canadian, I've never gone on a snowmobile. That's something I actually have done. I have gone on a snowmobile before and they are very, very fun. I love it. I went across like a frozen lake on one before and those things can rip, man. Like they can get up to pretty fast. Well, one of the reasons I'm in Alaska right now is that it's it was the end of the race the Ironman race and so I got to see the tail end of it and uh, and so I know one of the guys who was riding it he finished 11th and so I'm going to meet up with him today and he's going to take me for a ride now these things go near 100 miles an hour can you imagine on the lake so I will share with you next week how that turns out from Studio 54 in New York to ice fishing in Alaska. And yes, you probably know the answer why Ron is in Alaska from the show from um, a month or two ago. So if you don't, then uh, I don't know where you've been. You've been under a rock. Couple of months. All right. <laughs> you've been li- living under a rock for Ron Duguay, Molly Walker, Andrew Hartz. I'm Jake Brown. Do us a favor. Give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and a five-star rating on Spotify as well. We appreciate it. We will be back next week on Molly Walker's 25th birthday, baby. She'll be eating ribs in St. Louis. We'll talk to you all then. Thanks for listening. Peace. Don't open the door for me. (laughs) 